You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we want to welcome you to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day edition of the M Squared TechCast. We're going to be taking a look at uh, people of color and women in engineering and allied professions, science, technology, engineering, arts and architecture, and mathematics with a couple of guests. And then our second half hour will, as usual, be devoted to our very own epidemiologist, our very own infectious disease expert, Mr. Fred Brown, who is going to talk to us about uh, COVID vaccine news, uh, including the distribution bottlenecks we're seeing right now. Our first guest um, is actually a former boss of mine, uh, Robert McGee, the executive director of the Engineering Society of Detroit. Um, and he would like to talk to us about some efforts of ESD uh, toward getting more people of color into engineering and allied technical professions and education. So, Robert, why don't you start by telling us just a little bit about what ESD is and, and what it does? Matt, it's great to see you again, and Mike, and thank you guys for this opportunity. Uh, the Engineering Society of Detroit is one of the oldest engineering societies in the U.S. We are 125 years old. Uh, we are a Michigan-centric society, and our primary focus is a strong talent pipeline for Michigan in engineering and technology-related professions. So our goal is to get, one, more students excited about going into engineering as a career path, and also to get them to graduate. But while they're in school, our goal is to connect them and expose them to the opportunities available to them in engineering, in industry, through our corporate partners. We also are affiliated with the technical engineering societies like the SAEs, the IEEEs, the SWEs, the NASBs, and that group as well. So we are excited to be one of the pillows in Michigan, driving an awareness to the huge opportunities in engineering, especially in Michigan. Michigan employs more engineers per capita than any other state in the United States. So we have a lot of talent here. We have a lot of jobs here, and we need strong talent to fill those jobs. Now, I was looking at your notes, and uh, you made reference to an academy that you guys have recently started. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yes, uh, Mike. We are excited to say that in 2016, we started development for Girls in Engineering Academy. The background on that was the deans of the 15 A Better Credit Engineering Schools in Michigan asked me if we would start to close that gap because there was a lack of underrepresented minorities in the classroom. You could go into almost any classroom in any one of the 15 schools in Michigan, and you find just onesie twosies as it relates to underrepresented minorities. So we started this group. They start out from, they matriculate from the fifth grade to the sixth grade. So we start with them in July of that summer when they're going from the fifth grade to the sixth grade. The first part of our program is uh, introduction to a college campus. So they're on Wayne State's campus for four weeks, four days in the classroom with female students as facilitators and instructors, and then one day in industry where they see and they're hosted by females working in engineering for, for various corporations that partner with us in this program. The second year is a residence program where the girls check in in July and they're on campus as a resident student hmm. for four weeks. So year two is about experiencing college life. And then year three continues that development on experiencing college life. And year three is going to either be at Lawrence Tech or at OU. The last time we had it before the pandemic, it was at OU. This year, Lawrence Tech will be in the mix. 
So we're excited to say that we have over 100 girls in this program. We have 88% retention. And it's a very rigorous program. It, it runs four weeks in the summer. They get a break. And then we start back up every other Saturday in October and go all the way through May. Wow. So where, where are these girls from? What school districts are you recruiting from? These girls are primarily from the Detroit school districts. Uh, believe it or not, I get asked this question, Matt, by the foundation leader at Fiat Chrysler. Uh, how many girls were on the east side? How many girls was on the west side? <laughs> As it turns out, all of our girls are from the west side. Hmm, all really? than five of them. Interesting. Uh, so but the plan for this year is to, to recruit heavier and bring some population of girls from the east side into the program as well. So um, how difficult is it? I know engineering has traditionally been a male profession and, uh, and, and largely white males. I, I, and same with technology. I go to a lot. Well, I used to go to, I used to go to a lot of technology functions, but for the last year or so, not so much, but previously it would be all pretty much white males in there that were doing that. So I know that's one of the things you want to do, but particularly with young women, how is is it difficult getting persuading them or interesting them in STEM careers or not? Mike, it's um, it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, the thing that is challenging is most of these girls have little to no exposure to anyone that's an engineer mm-hmm. based on, you know, their village and who they have association with. So the term engineering doesn't really resonate with them as a lane or a career path that they should be interested in. Uh, many of them are very gifted in math and in science. Uh, they just they haven't figured out yet how to translate that into the workplace. Mm-hmm. So what I've done is I've tried to define engineering in very simplified terms. When I when I talk to the parents and I talk to these girls that are fifth graders, just getting ready to go into the sixth grade. I tell them that engineering is just simply the application of scientific knowledge in problem solving. And we demonstrate that in our program. We teach them the concepts and the theory behind the, the engineering. And then we have various kits that, in, that, that they're engaged in, in, in act, in, and they're in acting with each other to understand how to apply that knowledge. And, you know, the the population is definitely skewed. You know, um, I get data every year from the American Society of Engineering Education, and and it's called ASEE. Matt's definitely heard of it. Mm -hmm. They sent me their numbers for 2019. In 2019, we had 112,036 bachelor's degrees in the United States in engineering. Of that percent, 77.5% 77.5% were males, 22.5% were females. If you want to break that down even more, there were 159 American Indian females. There were 1,439 African American females. There were 3,494 Hispanic females. There was 5,168 Asian females. And there were 16,422 white females. So the underrepresented population, which is African-Americans, Hispanics, and American Indians, the numbers are 4.4% for African-American females, 0.4% for American Indians, and 12.1% for Hispanic females. So as you can see, even in 2019, that population is still very small. Hmm. So how do we reach these folks? <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I, um, you know, we're, we're just coming off a, a Christmas holiday. And then after the Christmas holiday, I, I had a knee replacement. So I've been on medical leave the last couple of weeks. So I've been watching more television than usual. Okay. Um, and I see, it seems like every other show, all of the shows, entertainment shows on all the networks, it's either how cool it is to be a cop, how cool it is to be a lawyer, how cool it is to be a doctor how cool it is to be a nurse that or is like all over, or all or over the popular like culture, right? Yeah, right? How do we get people to see how cool it is to be an engineer? I mean, what, <laughs> is there anything we can do about that? I, I guess I, I, I can't see an action adventure TV show about it, but there should be something we could do. <laughs> I like it. Matt, Matt, the thing that I will tell you is, you know, this program has been a, a, a eye opener for me. 
these girls and their parents have become our strongest supporters hmm. and our strongest advocates that's out there promoting the program and the excitement. One of the things that I've heard the girls say over and over and over, I never knew learning could be so much fun. One of the things that we did design our program to be from day one is this program cannot feel like school hmm. because they think about this. If, if you have matriculating fifth graders going to the sixth grade that are used to being in the classroom five days a week, the last thing they want to do in the summer and on Saturday is go to another school class. So first of all, I did not hire regular teachers because they're, 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 their mantra is, I'm going to be a teacher in the classroom. We needed energy. We need excitement. I need these girls to see themselves in the facilitators in six to, to eight years. So we have female engineering students that are instructed in the classroom as facilitators and also as teacher aides, but we're already bringing them into a college campus to understand that there are people that look like me that's on this campus and I belong here. Yeah. So we are starting to promote this program aggressively through the parents, through the students. These kids are posting all kinds of things on social media about how much they enjoy this program. This summer, Matt, for year four, because the program started in 2017. So our first group of cohorts, they finished the program for the middle school link in the summer in, in May of 2020. So we, we decided, okay, what's our high school link going to look like? Well, this summer, these girls took courses from professors at Eastern Michigan. They huh. took two courses, one in 3D design <coughs> and one in robotic uh, car design. Hmm. And what I did, Matt, was I wanted them now to experience instructors that did not look like them and that did not, were not born in the U.S. So one of the professors were from the, was from the Middle East. And one was from China. So I'm now exposing them to a whole different population. You know, really, in order to continue to close this gap and get more people into this lane, we got to have greater exposure at a lot of levels. There's no one in the school talking about a career in engineering. Right. If you go, if you, I have met with at least 15 uh counselors in different schools and some of these are in very highly recommended schools they just they do not talk about a career in engineering so we we got to take this we got to be the voice of this next generation of future engineers and so ESD plan to close that gap and be the one to propel this profession to a much broader population and it's rare, very crucial to reach them early too, right? Like late elementary school or early middle school. You almost have to because in order for them to be on track, to have to be math proficient and have gotten through all the science that they need, you got to start them in the sixth grade. Because yeah. if, you, if you're not proficient in math, you're going to struggle in engineering. One of the good reasons why I'm not an engineer. So yes. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I took engineering courses my freshman year of college and realized no, I don't think so. You know, so yeah, I, I I struggled to get a C in Calc one. So yeah, that was yeah. that was the end of my aspirations of engineering. I can tell you that. But uh, well, you know, I when I looked Matt and and Mike into why there were so many kids, you know, that dropped out of engineering at the end of their freshman year, you know, thirty eight to sixty eight percent. You know, uh, the two reasons that came up globally was not proficient in math and they did not have good study habits. Yeah. Well, I think I had both my freshman year. <laughs> I was more interested in girls and beer at that point, you know. All right, so, uh, all right Robert, we got about we got about a little over a minute left. Um, I, I just had a real quick question for you about Future City, which is the middle school program uh, for, for designing cities that ESD runs. Are we doing that this year? Is it virtual? How is that going to work this year? We are doing it this year. It is virtual. It'll be on a little bit of a smaller scale. You know, some of the schools did not allow their kids to engage in projects because they were virtual. But uh, this year, you know, the theme is a city on the moon or a city in space. They, they can go with either one of those. So it will be virtual. Uh, we'll get you the date for that because it's going to be in March as opposed to January. And okay. then the national is also going to be virtual. So a lot of states, of course, because of the pandemic, have had to, to drop out. But we're still going to have a population. I think in Michigan, we, as of right now, we have about 
13 to 15 schools that are enrolled, and we have probably close to 18 teams that will be involved. So they'll be doing different components of their model. There will not be just one model to come together like we've seen in the past. It's going to be different components of that model that are done by different students at their house. Okay. okay. Robert, uh, real quick, uh, let people know what the website is of ESD if they want more information on the organization or any of these programs we've talked about. Absolutely. Go to ESD.org and click on any of the programs that we have mentioned. Also, it will give you information on what future events we have coming up. We have a webinar coming up for our, our members, Matt, uh, on My Green Power. We're partnering with DTE to be one of their environmental energy leaders as well. Okay. Thanks very much, Robert McGee, Executive Director of the Engineering Society of Detroit. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be back in just a minute with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. For right now, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you're watching the M Squared TechCast, MITechnews.tv. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Technology are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Welcome back. It's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you're watching the M Squared TechCast, MITechnews.tv, and a whole bunch of places on the internet. Uh, this segment, we're going to talk about broadening the image of uh, STEM professionals uh, to include more people of color in historically underrepresented uh, groups. And to do that, we have with us today uh, Dr. Sabrina Collins, who is Executive Director of the Marburger STEM Center at my employer, Lawrence Technological University, which you, you can see back there. Um, that is a, a private university focused mostly on the STEM disciplines in Southfield. We also have with us, uh, Adrian. why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell folks just a little bit about who you are and, and what you do at Lawrence Tech. Hello. Can yeah, you guys hear on. me? Yep. Yep. Um, so hello, my name is Adrian. I am a senior in computer engineering here at Lawrence Tech. I'm actually on campus right now. Um, it's a very good experience. Um, I really fell in love with the major that I chose, you know, um, after time, um, taking multiple classes and I realized that it was really for me. Okay. Well, Dr. Collins, we were just talking with Robert McGee, the executive director of the engineering society, about um, providing more examples of um, underrepresented groups, people of color in the engineering and technology professions. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the Marburger STEM Center does to uh, advance that goal as well. And so, you know, thank you for uh, having me again. So, you know, the Marburger STEM Center is the clearinghouse of all of the STEM activities, right, that we have on uh, campus uh, at Lawrence Tech. And our primary goal really is to try to get young people to understand how STEM shapes their everyday experiences, how it impacts their daily lives. And we have wonderful faculty, staff, and amazing ambassadors like uh, Adrian to help make that a reality. And my own work in the classroom to uh, broaden the image of a STEM professional, I do that through storytelling right, highlighting STEM professionals that are not featured uh, in textbooks. You know, you can tell a story about the discovery of a molecule, but why not tell a story about the scientist or the STEM professional that actually developed, right, uh, developed that actual discovery? So going beyond the science, learning a little bit about them as human beings. Now, one of the things that Robert talked about was, uh, particularly with young women, is to get them hooked early. Uh, he was saying just to 
get all the coursework done to get them ready for college, they really need to start coming in around sixth grade, give or take. Uh, I'm not sure, and probably Matt knows more, obviously knows, knows more than I do on this, but are you reaching out to young women, uh, young girls like that at that age and trying to introduce them to the STEM professions? Absolutely. And actually, we have a partnership with the Engineering Society of Detroit, where they have, for their Girls in Engineering Academy, we had a virtual uh, group of uh, young women, uh, 22 this summer, um, to, uh, to engage them. So you're absolutely right. Um, you have to reach uh, girls, particularly around that middle school age, to get them uh, excited and keep them engaged uh, in STEM. So you're absolutely correct about that. All right. So uh, tell us a little bit about some of the things uh, they, that you've been doing in terms of, I, I know you've been published recently uh, talking about some of your efforts on sort of bringing popular culture into the classroom and helping students think about real life applications of STEM in that way. Absolutely. So I had a, a book chapter uh, published uh, last year uh, entitled Inorganic Chemistry by Branium Black Panther, uh, in, a, in a periodic table where uh, the, and the book chapter is dedicated to the late Chadwick Boseman um, because he was just such, such so awesome uh, playing Black Panther. And what we do is we talk about how we've used uh, the movie, movies like The Avengers and Black Panther to engage young people uh, in STEM and, you know, take that a step further by talking about the real applications. We know vibranium is not real, you know, but there oh, are darn. many elements. <laughs> unfortunately, it's not real. <laughs> but, I thought it was know, in Captain America's shield though, right? So it has to it, be real, right? Okay. right? Well, you know what? I'm a fan of superhero science, Mike. So yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, and really uh, using science fiction uh, to talk about real applications, you know, of, of elements. And it's a way to get them engaged. So we did that with the periodic table and doing that with uh, some other types of uh, activities. Let me ask Adrian, uh, uh, you're a young man. What attracted you to engineering? And at what age did you feel like you wanted to be an engineer? Um, so ever since I was like little, I bounced around to the, it had to be something in the science fields just because like, well, and I was introduced to it mostly through like the media, you know, like uh, cartoons and stuff. Um, I, w I was never into like social media. I know a lot of people are kind of into that, but, um, I, I watched a lot of, uh, like cartoons about, you know, like, for example, to name some Ben 10, you know, that's just like a really sciencey one about like aliens and stuff. That's cool. So you see a bunch of future technology in that. Then you also see a lot, you know, just the Marvel and DC universe. You just see a bunch of like larger than life technology. That's actually kind of, some of it is actually being, um, produced in the real world nowadays, you know, tech technological advancement is like increasing. So exponentially. So, um, but yeah, just like as a kid though, mostly just like uh, cartoons that I watched science fiction uh, books or like, um, yeah, it's pretty much, pretty much it. Yeah. So was anyone, was anyone else in your family growing up? Was anyone an engineer? Was anyone involved in computer science at all? Um, unfortunately, no. And that's like um, a big challenge with a lot of people. Um, not no, like not having anybody to facilitate that interest because I'm pretty sure a lot of people that were like young, like me, um, or younger, like when I was a kid, they have an interest in these things because, like, um, a lot of the cartoons when I was growing up were actually like based off this science and engineering concept. But, um, if you don't have anybody to actually like point you in the right direction, like, I didn't get a computer. I remember like the first computer I got was like this small, um, it was like had an Intel Atom processor, which is just like extinct now. It was just so like, it was so slow and everything and just like really small, but I, I loved it. You know, I was introduced to like YouTube and just like Googling things. And I had to used to wait like 10 minutes to like load some like web pages. But like, I mean, that's what I was working with. So I, you know, it was a struggle getting into it. But, you know, if, if, if some time, if somebody else like me now could get access to a computer, you know, easier, you know, maybe they can. Um, well, that's what you know, that's kind of what you're doing now as a STEM ambassador for Lawrence Tech, yes. which was my next question is you're you're kind of being that person who wasn't there for you um, through this program. So so tell me a little bit about what you've done as a Lawrence Tech ambassador. I don't know if you're involved in any of the schools that we have programs at or uh, talk, talk a little bit about what you do as an ambassador. 
um, to go back to like um, what Dr. Collins was saying, um, I, you know, I really liked what she was talking about, about the Black Panther thing. So um, as she actually showed me one of her older um, projects that she introduced to students, and it was just really interesting. I saw that she ha- had a lot of Black Panther uh, references and things like that. Um, so I actually made a PowerPoint presentation to introduce uh, like, but it was more based off of Iron Man. Um, just because of time restrictions, I wish I could do one on every Marvel hero. I'm just a big fan, but um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it just showed like the application and how like in the real world, they're actually coming out with jet suits and stuff like that. And, you know, AI like Jarvis is actually like real AI, like that's getting more and more complex and, you know, similar to Jarvis and doing the things that, you know, he did in the movie. Well, and also, at- I'm oh, sorry. I was just going to say, GM has just introduced their, quote, flying Cadillac, which is a, a, a vertical takeoff and landing device that the, you would use to, you know, fly around the city in, in lieu of getting caught in traffic. So, you know, that's from Matt and I's use. That's the Jetsons theme, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It's yeah, I like the Jetsons, too. Flying, yeah, where's my flying car? Jeez, well, it's coming, that? yes. You're supposed to have those by now. Come on now. <laughs> Yeah, we're we're lagging behind, honestly. Yes. <laughs> All right, so Dr. Collins, what's uh what's ahead for the Marburger STEM Center? What are you planning for this summer and uh for the for the school year that's coming up in 21 and 22? Hopefully things will be getting back to close to normal, whatever that may mean these days uh, as the vaccine rolls out. Absolutely. So, we're planning for and as you said, if if everything goes well to do in person, Extreme Science Saturdays beginning fall 2021 and uh, spring 2022. So for the rest of this semester, we do have two more uh, virtual Extreme Science Saturdays coming up. One in February focused on uh, starting your own business, that entrepreneurial mindset. And that'll be in February. And in March, one focused on making your own lava lamp. Uh, which will be groovy. <laughs> groovy, yes. <laughs> I haven't Gnarly. been in a while. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully, you know, if things go well, you know, we will have in-person summer camps, right, activities uh, as well. So we'll see. You know, we're going to remain hopeful and things will, I'm, I'm really hopeful that things will be better in 2021. Yeah, well, we've got Dr. Doom coming on in a few minutes, so you you should uh, stay around and, and stay in the virtual green room and listen to what he has to say. Absolutely. Yeah, it's not good, but uh, <laughs> we'll get through this, right? Yeah, we don't have a choice. Yes. You know? right, we have yeah. to get through it because we don't have a choice. All right. So uh, let people, we're down to about two minutes to go here. So let people know, please, if you would, how to get a hold of uh, the Marburger STEM Center and its various programs. Sure. You can easily go to the Lawrence Tech website, type in uh, search for the Marburger STEM Center, um, and you'll, you'll access our webpage. I'm available at scollins at ltu.edu. And hopefully soon we'll be able to have some real in-person tours of the Marburger STEM Center. All right. And Adrian, uh, you're on campus right now, but are you, are you mentoring anybody? Or are you open to that? Um, sure. I would definitely be open to mentoring anybody that, you know, needs help. Um, my email to get in contact with me is A-B-R-O-O-K-S-1 at ltu.edu. So, yeah. And I have a couple of uh, virtual workshops um, lined up. Um, so if you're interested in that, then, you know, get in contact with Dr. Collins and she can send you the links and everything to participate. One last question before we let you go, Adrian. Where do you see yourself in five years? What would you like to be doing in five years? Ideally, I want to have my own like laboratory or like um, like um, just like a or a think tank or something. Um, just with like minded individuals, we're just creating cool stuff and just have like funding and you know we just can just do whatever we want to just make some cool stuff like the flying cars you were talking about. Yeah. Well, that'll yeah. make Matt very happy as well. So he wants that dividing <laughs> car. <so>. Okay. <laughs> right, You'll get the you, first Adrian. one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, give me the test model, sure. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and a parachute. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Thanks very much, Adrian. Thanks very much, Dr. Sabrina Collins from the Marburger STEM Center at Lawrence Technological University. That's uh, 
www.ltu.edu and then search for Marburger Stem Center or just Stem Center. Uh, we'll be back in just a minute with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. For right now, this is Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And you're watching the M Squared TechCast, MITechnews.tv. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Don't see FredNet yet, just so you know. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Rausch. And Mike Brennan. And we're waiting on our friend Fred Brown, our very own epidemiologist and uh, infectious disease expert. Uh, we, you know, lovingly refer to him as Dr. Doom, but he comes on, he's been coming on every week for what, about three months now, I think. Mike? Oh, Something no, like since that. March, actually. Since March. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so time does fly when you're having months. fun, right? You know. Oh, yeah. It's been just su such a riot here. Uh, so, oh, sorry. Yeah, bad thing to say after last oh, week. Oh, yeah. Right. Yes. After so, last yeah. week. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we're going to have Fred here. I know I just talked to him this morning. And I just text him. So while we're waiting, any any hot LTU news you want to share with the audience? Well, the uh, second semester at LTU, spring semester, starts tomorrow. Uh, and we're going to be doing it the same way that we did uh, our fall semester, <clears throat> which is uh, a mixture of in-person, online, and hybrid learning. Our students uh, in the fall semester voted with their feet. They overwhelmingly prefer face-to-face -face education. That's what they want. And since we have relatively small class sizes, it's pretty easy for us to keep people six feet apart and barriers between them and that sort of thing. So we were able to have in-person classes for um, all but one week. The last week of the semester, we started to see a little uptick in cases. So we went, um, basically, we went virtual one week earlier, one week earlier than planned in the fall semester, because uh, we were going to not have kids come back after Thanksgiving, um, just because that sounded like a super spreader event to us. So we were going to go all virtual after Thanksgiving anyway, and we wound up doing that one week early because we did see a little uptick in cases. Now, hopefully, um, everyone will continue to mind their P's and Q's and, uh, you know, do the right thing, wear masks, social distance, wash hands, all that good stuff uh, in the spring semester. So we'll be able to continue with the in-person classes in the spring semester. Once again, that starts tomorrow. The uh, last day of classes is the first week of May. I think it's the 7th, uh, might be the 6th or the 8th, but it's right around in there. And there's also not going to be a spring break this year. They're, they're going to go right straight plow through the semester, uh, basically. Um, but obviously at an engineering and architecture school like Lawrence Tech, where those are the two biggest programs, you've got um, architecture uh, studios that are much better in person, you know, that, that are that are, you know, especially for the younger students. Um, graduate architecture classes have been online for a while now at Lawrence Tech, but uh, for the for the those that are just starting out, face-to-face uh, -face stuff is a lot more fun. Um, oh, and here's Fred. Hey guys, how's everything going? All right. How are you feeling? More importantly, I am feeling just great. I've had I've had two COVID tests in the last two weeks, both negative, and I have a brand spanking new left knee now. So I'm uh, I'm I'm good. So excellent. Guess, we should mention little... that uh, that Matt has been out for the past couple of weeks recouping from his second knee operation. Yes. So now I have two bionic knees, not just yep. one. So oh. he's our new Steve Austin, and he's challenged everyone to a foot race here in a few more months once he's fully healed. Oh yeah, he runs sixty miles an hour now. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking something like that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I just I wanted to throw that out, you know, challenge. So. No, I just, I just want to be able to walk five miles without pain. That's the entire yes. point of all this. It's, running is that. Uh, that's okay. I just want to walk. You know, that's that. That'll be enough. The technology is amazing, isn't it? Who would have thought that after you know a week 
a week off, you'd be walking around again after getting. Yeah, away yeah, going up and down stairs. I mean, it, it's a little stiff, but only a little. So you know, it it is amazing stuff. Well, he has Speaking. to be able to keep up with his granddaughter now. So. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> little, little little Grace is going to be crawling soon, so she's already just about flipping over. She's about three months old. So excellent. Um, so, so Fred, speaking of amazing stuff, we have these amazing vaccines now. Right. Um, and so, but what is the deal with the supply chain and getting them in people's arms? Uh, we've yeah. heard, we've heard a lot of bad stuff about that lately. So there's two things I want to talk to you about today. One yeah. is the, the, the vaccine distribution. The other one is this more contagious strain, you know, where is that and how do we fight that? Yeah. So. I actually saw Fred this morning when I dropped something off and, he told me my mask wasn't going to be much good with this new strain, which is oh boy. not something that any of us wanted to hear. But why don't we start with that, and then we'll go into the vaccine schedule. Yeah, so the new strain. That's not to say don't wear your mask. Masks are really critical. But what I what I did say is there are typical distancing um, uh, kind of practices that we think are are okay today will not be in the future. Oh boy. Uh, yeah. So if you're used to going, you know, to Myers during crowded times and, you know, standing in line, uh, you know, to buy some beer uh, at, the, at the local at the local place, um, man, be really careful. This new vaccine's in Washtenaw County. We've uh, identified it. It's the B117 uh, variant. Uh, I was on a special committee in the UK uh, in December about this, and these guys are running scared. Uh, they, these are uh, epidemiologists who've seen it all, right? We work in tropical medicine all the time. We've seen Ebola. We've seen Zika. This thing really scared them. And the reason that it did, we went over a little bit at one point, and we can go into more detail if you like, but the variants um, have two big characteristics. The first big characteristic is that they are much more transmissible than mm-hmm. the current uh, uh, than the current uh, Wuhan virus. Um, what happens with these, with these viruses is actually they, they 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 grow and then they die out, and they grow and die out. So the Wuhan di- uh, virus, the original variant that we got in, in in on the west coast, actually already was supplanted pretty quickly by a European variant that was more transmissible. Hmm. Uh, and so by the time uh, by the time we got to kind of March April, most of this what we were fighting wasn't even the the Chinese variant of the virus anymore. And what's happened in the UK was they're fighting the they, they were fighting the kind of variants that we were fighting, uh, and suddenly they noticed a huge uptick. They, they, so they went into massive shutdown. I'm not talking about the the the, the shutdowns that uh, Governor Whitmer put in place. I'm talking about shutdowns that included no more shopping, stay in your homes uh, under all circumstances, no other than four people at dinner, and that should be in your immediate family only. Uh, curfews after 8 p.m. We're talking about a real shutdown, right? That happened about the same time Governor Whitmer's shutdown occurred on November 17th. I think they went in uh, October 30th, as I recall, the, the Britons saw this. And what happened was the virus stopped, and they said, ah, Celebration, we're 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 through. We we we've succeeded, and the, the virus started going down. And all of a sudden, they saw this huge uptick, and they uh, said, what, "What's wrong? You know, we're still at full curfew. Where everyone's wearing masks. We've got you know, we've got the best possible protection, and their hospitals are being completely overrun in the, in, in London and in Edinburgh and in Glasgow and all the major cities." And they couldn't figure it out. And they started, they, luckily, they've got a very strong um, g- genetic sequencing operation in, in, in Britain. Britain uh, sequences um, more uh, genes than, uh, of the virus than anybody else in the world. They do about 150,000 uh, uh, a year uh, on average. We're doing about 50,000. So we're about, a, and, but of course, they've got one-fifth the population we do. So if you think about that, they're sequencing about about 7.4% of all the sequences that come of all the positive tests that come in, they sequence those 7.4. We're at 0.3%. So we have no idea what <laughs> the total pop. We have no idea what we're fighting anymore. Right. We were, we're flying, flying blind. Well, they were flying blind and they saw right away that, that, that this, there's a new, a new variant. And this new variant is about 70% more infectious. Hmm. So the old masks that you're you know used to wearing and you're putting on now, and sometimes you wear them and sometimes you don't, and sometimes your nose is covered, sometimes they aren't, and they're sort of manufactured in someone's basement, not going to cut it. You're going to have to wear a really real true N95 masks from now, from now until we get this thing under control. Right now, we think it's about 1.5% of all the things we're fighting. Um, what's interesting is that's doubled in a week. So you know, uh, a week ago, we were at 0.7. Now it's, now it's at 1.5. 
and we watch the doubling rates, right? So if you do the if you do the math, uh, you know the devils again, and you're going to be at two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two yeah, percent. Uh, so in five to six weeks, it'll be at sixty-four percent of everything we're fighting in the in in, in the United States. That's how fast it goes. Hmm. <laughs> and when those things got people are just going to get surprised that I did the same stuff I did before and I got sick. How did that happen? And the answer is you're fighting something new and it's going to be a lot harder to get rid of and a lot more devastating when it goes through the family, through communities, uh, it's going to really move. It'll tear right through us if we don't, if we don't start to up our game a lot. So people are, are really worried about this um, and legitimately. So the other big thing uh, is that, so we got transmissibility, 70% more transmissible. The reason is that it uh, actually binds more closely to the ACE2 inhibitor. Uh, I'm sorry, the ACE2 site that we, that binds. So we've got this, these, these ACE2 uh, binding sites on all of our cells. Uh, most of our organs do a uh, few exceptions. Uh, and that's where the, that's where this virus binds. Well, this variant, this B1.1.7 variant, actually binds more tightly uh, to it and is therefore needs less infective agent to come in, bind more tightly to your receptors, inject you with the virus, and that's how it spreads so much faster. And then when you get it, this particular variant actually causes more viral shedding and makes you more transmissible. So that when you're, you're talking about about 55% more virus in you that's shedding out to people. Um, and luckily we're not seeing a change in virulence with this particular um, uh, uh, change in the mutation, but we are seeing a, a lot more transmissibility and the ability to infect children is a lot higher. In this mm. one, so we might see a lot more children being infected by the COVID uh, virus as a result of this. The other big variant that we're worried about um, is the 1352 variant. So we have the 117 variant, and that's the one that transmits so much more faster. The 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 the, the uh, 1352 variant coming is coming out of South Africa and Brazil. So it's coming at it from both sides, right? Isn't that perfect? And, and the, the problem with this variant <laughs> is that it uh, has actually. Um, mutated uh, in the binding site area. And the reason that's so tricky is because all of our medicines, all of our vaccines, all of our diagnostics assumed that we weren't going to have that mutation occurring, right? We said, hey, that spike protein area, that's going to have to remain pretty stable because otherwise that thing can't infect us. Well, it's found, we, we've basically mapped out about 40,000 different variants. I'm sorry, 4,000 different variants that we were you know, extremely concerned about. And within the first nine months, we've already found one of the most concerning variants possible. This particular mutation is right in the middle of the binding site. And that means that a lot of our current tests, if we have continued mutation in those areas, our current tests, our current diagnostics, and our current uh, 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 vaccines and medicines will be less in, impactful than they are today. We're already seeing that, unfortunately, and both the Lilly monoclonal antibody and the Regeneron monoclonal antibody, we're seeing that they're not as effective. And the plasma proteins, remember the plasma proteins that come off of sick people that were originally for the Wuhan virus, that we've saved very carefully, and then we're saying we're going to give you some of these nice antibodies. They're, they're not nearly as effective. And people who've been given those, those, uh, those plasma infusions in the past who were saved that that's those same patients once they got the b1.1.7 virus died uh and so uh oh, we're <laughs> we're concerned we're, we're really concerned the reason that we're concerned is that coronaviruses don't mutate that much you know compared to the flu it's compared to hiv and malaria these are kind of low grade mutating groups and we thought so. We thought we were pretty safe, right? We can keep up with the mutations. You got these technologies that match to the genome. We can watch for this. Well, the problem is where they're mutating. They're mutating right at the sites that we're most sensitive to a mutation. That's the spike protein, which actually causes the infection and and and, and what we always bind to. Um, and so, and we have to bind to those because that's the nature of the vaccine. You want to bind to those particular binding sites, not to other ones. Otherwise, you get ad adverse events. So. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're worried about the fact that it's mutating in a place that we weren't expecting. And so uh, the vaccines then that we currently have are they able to deal with this new strain? 
We're still testing in South Africa. We're very we're most concerned about that one because it's happening right in the middle of, the, of what they call the the binding motif, which is you have a you've got a spike and you've got a binding a binding domain, and then within the domain, the most important area is the motif, and right in that area, right in the middle of it, somehow this thing is still very infective, uh, and and <laughs> and change right in the middle. But we're still testing. J and J has active active uh, trials in South Africa, so we're looking directly at those results in in the field. We have done we have done uh, work like this in the laboratory, but that's not as effective, right? We're kind of seeing, okay, here's the typical kind of here's the typical kind of antibodies that are coming as a result of the vaccine. We we mix those with these new variants, and so far, great news is that the variants are are still being killed by the same antibodies we've got as a result of the vaccine to the Wuhan virus as as, as this variant. So mm-hmm. that that's the good news. But we want to see that in nature, and the J and J results should tell us that. In a, in a couple of weeks, they're going to be able to close down the, the trial and, and tell us what's going on with their vaccine. That, and that is the same antigen, as you know, uh, that's, the, uh, uh, that's the same antigen as, that's being used uh, by both Moderna and Pfizer. So we should be uh, in a lot better uh, a lot better shape to be able to tell about that particular virus. That's the one we're most worried about. The 117 virus does seem to be neutralized by our current vaccines. So uh, sorry. So that that's that's the bad news, right? I mean, it's really bad news that not only are <laughs> not only is the virus going in the wrong direction, but it's getting more transmissible. Your old your old techniques have to be you know really amped up. I mean, we're not, so you know, please don't go to restaurants, please don't go to the bar, please go to nightclubs uh, until you know because it's it's really going to tear right through the community if you if you start doing that. Um, uh, and and wear wear your mask if you can get an N95 mask. Wear that if you can distance, uh, continue the distancing, and even make it broader if you can, um, because uh, this is going to be a bad one. Hmm. I do have I have I do have some data though. I can show I can show you uh, if you want. Okay. I can show you some stuff. Sure. Uh, the other thing you want to talk about vaccination rates. Let's talk about vaccination rates. So well, well, you're bringing that up. I got a new email from the U of M this morning and. Uh, uh, they're now, I'm in group 1C over 65, and hey. so now they're, they're randomly selecting people right. from my age group to participate, and they'll send me an email if, if I've been selected. Hey, that's great news. Uh, that Well, and so this is, I wanted to show you a couple of things. Um, I, I decided to take a quick look at Michigan and um, uh, in a little more detail. As you know, I don't I don't work for the state. I work for other states. I, I've, I've done work for Ohio and Connecticut and California and Texas and but Michigan not. <laughs> so I'm sort of an objective. I'm sort of an objective person when it comes to Michigan. And, and overall, I think that we've done some really good things. So uh, where, where's a slide uh, slideshow? There we are. Sorry about that. Turn this on and. Um, here we are. So here's Michigan. And what I did is, I oh, uh, so here's what Michigan looked like, right? And people have been complaining about these shutdowns. And I was curious about whether, you know, whether that made, whether they made sense. Um, and I think you can see that we had one big shutdown March 16th, and that sort of carried on being on and off through this period. And you can see that March 16th, we were going up a curve and we actually had a slightly worse situation on our hands, as you know, in April than the rest of the United States. The rest of the United States was looking better. Um, and then we went down and, and the United States had that big outbreak. You can see July, August, September, California, uh, basically we were driven by California, Florida um, and, uh, and, and Arizona. And the reason was that we had a lot of, of people who were picking our or there were a lot of uh, farm workers who were going undetected, going out in the fields, getting sick, spreading it in the Latin American and uh, the Latino communities. Uh, and that kind of went under the radar for a while, and we're seeing a huge. You can see harvest season in California just drove us through the roof um, uh, on that. And Michigan also went up quite a bit. You can see that there we are. The U.S. is in blue. We're in red. And um, and uh, you know on November seventeenth, uh, Governor Whitmer said, "Let's slow things down. We're on a bad curve." The rest of the United States did not really pursue that like we did as strongly as we did and you can see the rest of the united states just took off and we went down so that was that was a good call that was a really really good call on her part right before thanksgiving to say let's try to hold this off and we're and the rest of the united states is fighting off you know um this this now 
uh, as really uh, in trouble in a lot of states. And you can see here's how it spread through the uh, through the through the state of Michigan. Um, uh, and you can see Upper Peninsula, especially along the borders. Interestingly, the Ohio Indiana border, the Wisconsin borders. We're having a lot of trouble keeping that virus from going across the border. Once we get into the state, our state ourselves, we're doing a pretty good job. You know, we're we're. We're in the lightest in the lightest area. You know, we're below one in twenty uh, share of uh, population with a reported case. Uh, we've had some. You know, we've got a low population in some of these areas. And, you know, we've, uh, and so even one death, for example, in some of these counties up in north in, in, in the UP pushes pushes us off the map uh, in terms of uh, in terms of the you know the COVID negative uh, numbers. But uh, overall. Um, except along our borders, we're doing really, I think we're doing pretty well, right? So that's the way it looks. And we're on a downward trend. Uh, the the, the, the shut-in has worked. Now, this happened in, in the UK as well, right? The shut-in worked in the UK. All of a sudden, we had this new variant come out, and it just went off the charts. And so what I'm worried about is that we're, you know, now we're relaxing a little bit. And you can see here are the things that we really have to worry about. So this, is, this isn't just me, this is 500 epidemi epidemiologists tracking where the diseases are occurring, why they've occurred. And you can see here are the things that are less risky versus the things that are more risky. And as you move from, uh, uh, from the left-hand side, that's less risky. So if you wanna take, you know, take out food, do some exercising outdoors, go golfing, camping, outdoor dining, go to a, a museum, um, be with your family, not a problem. Those are low risk operations. Medium risk is going on an airplane. That's even getting to high risk, depending how long you're on that airplane. Uh, visiting elderly in the home because they're more susceptible. Uh, going bowling because a little bit of exertion plus it's inside. Exercising at the gym. Those are sort of you know getting getting sitting um, in a movie theater. And then finally, you can see the things that are really very dangerous. And we really, if you can at all, if at all possible, avoid because of this new variant coming in. Going to nightclubs, don't do that. <laughs> you know, nightclubs and, and sitting and, and, and gambling for long periods of time when you've had a couple of drinks, which is you know nice and relaxing. Um, but man, it is super dangerous with this new variant. Indoor bars, indoor dining, going to a concert where you're sitting there right next to lots of different people who are you know, over the top of you, breathing down on you. Going to sports stadiums. Even church, unfortunately, if it's if it's if it's indoors in a large congregation, people are singing and 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 following along. Um, that's going to be a challenge. Buffet dinners, don't do that. So those are the things that are really dangerous and are going to be not just dangerous today, but dangerous especially February and March timeframe. At that point, I think it will have over fifty percent of the of, of the variants uh, at the, by the end of March. Over fifty percent of what we're fighting is going to be something that is seventy percent more contagious than what we're fighting today. Well, I suppose it can't go to the gym either. That would be a bad idea, right? Uh, it depends. Well, if you're all by yourself and in a well-ventilated place, not a problem. So I work out downstairs. It's not nearly as fun as being in a real gym, I'll tell you. But it, uh, So that it depends. You you, you got to kind of be aware of your situation, right? If, if the gym is able to really ventilate um, and really keep people away and they really are just serious about disinfection and you're not and, and you don't get overly exerted uh, uh, and you're able to continue to wear your mask and those are hard things to do um, then uh, it's it's not nearly as dangerous as if you as, as if you're in a place that's enclosed without good ventilation without people with people who are getting you know close and waiting for the machines um, and, and and breathing hard uh, you know, especially things like spinning and things like, oh my gosh, you know, just be, I, I wouldn't go close to that, but if you can be in a place that's, you know, got lot, plenty of distance and plenty of ventilation, um, uh, and you're not near anybody and you're able to wear your mask because <coughs> you're not exerting too well and they're serious about keeping surfaces clean, be, be super careful, but that's possible. Okay. Uh, but especially the ventilation, though. Make sure they have HEPA filters. Make sure they ventilate regularly. Make sure they're getting fifteen cycles of uh, of uh, of four cycles of air per hour. That's that's you know twice as much as your as your average house. All those things. If they're not doing that, then I'd stay away. And if you can't find that out, I'd stay away. But yeah, so gyms generally are are challenging, unfortunately, because there are a lot of great facilities out there that you know. We didn't know. We didn't put the ventilation that bad. So here's what the governor did, and she said basically. You know, January 13th, we were, we're going down. Things are getting better. So she's going to open up some stuff. But these things are not open. Workplaces, nightclubs, contact sports. She's opened up some of the bowling centers. You know, she's on the edge here. My guess is she's going to have to shut those down, um, sadly. I, I, you know, get, 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 your, get your chance in 
um, you know, now and call it a day in the next week or two, because by that time, the new variant will come out and it'll be really dangerous. Uh, the vaccination rates was the other thing that Matt, I know wanted to talk about, and we're not doing so well uh, compared to the other states. Um, you know, we're, we're better than California and Idaho uh, and, the down, and down south, but we're not nearly as, as good as, say, Connecticut um, or North and South Dakota. West Virginia is doing a really good job on this as well. You can see we've vaccinated about 3.1% of our total population. We're getting into the sea level groups, which is why you were uh, talked to, Mike, I think. Uh, and uh, you can see that we've gotten 773,750 shots injected. Uh, uh, those are how many uh, doses we've actually uh, uh, received. We've only, though, injected 364,182 uh, doses. Hmm. So that's a 47% injection rate. And that's on that's 0.5% of the population. So we've gotten enough to, you know, that that's, yeah, we got a ways to go. Ways to go. Yes, sir. Uh, and, 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 you know, uh, Joe Biden came out and said he wants to do 100 million uh, doses by, uh, by, the, days. Be by, days. by Memorial Day, give or take, you know. By Memorial Day. That's that. Yeah. But, but I think that's sort of 100 days is sort of that's right. Sort of middle of April. That would be too slow. If we're at that rate, that's still too slow. We're going to have more manufacturing capability than that uh, by that point, and I would be disappointed. That would still mean we're only injecting about fifty percent of the doses that we're getting, and that would be, you know, that would mean that we haven't solved the distribution side. And you saw the challenges in production last last week, Mike. You know, we went through that. I want to talk a little bit about the challenges in distribution, if you'd like. We can talk yeah, about go ahead. right because that's the other bottleneck. First is manufacturing. We don't we don't have enough by definition because we're still ramping up, but we have actually manufactured so much stuff that we're overwhelming our distribution systems. And the, the, and here's what, here's where we're at, right? Um, the reason this is happening is because um, it is uh, the, the whole supply chain is being cobbled together. We never had a, a supply chain that was ready for COVID. We kind of had a supply chain in place that was ready to do, uh, you know, control, you know, to do the flu vaccine where you don't really have any outbreaks, things are in control. You're just monitoring that the, the flu shots. You're giving half the population a flu shot when they need it, uh, and through a through you know the pharmacy. Well, this is a situation where we've got a major outbreak, a pandemic level outbreak of a real bad pathogen that's ten times worse than the flu. Um, much more, uh, you know, it's it's two and a half times more uh, uh, transmittable and it's 10 times more deadly. So mm -hmm. all of a sudden we're in a completely different situation, new disease. And so we're trying to cobble together these, uh, these, these supply chains quickly. Pfizer said, you know, forget that. I'm just going to send everything you guys want directly to the end site vaccinator site, right? So if you're working with Pfizer out of Kalamazoo, they're shipping it right to a hospital and right to the hospital level or right to the vaccinator site level and all over, all over the country. Um, the Moderna has decided no, they want to partner with McKesson, who's putting together the vaccinators, the, the, the actual kits. Uh, and then they send their material uh, through McKesson to a, uh, a basically FedEx and UPS uh, to a warehouse where it can be kept cold. Don't forget, Pfizer has that minus 70 degree cold chain, which is much harder to manage. Uh, and Moderna has this minus 20, which is still much worse than we usually do. More, usually we're at what they call it uh, a two to four degree, a two to eight degree centigrade, which is, you know, about refrigerate. What do you call it? It's 40 degrees or so Fahrenheit. So it's, it's sort of what you keep your refrigerator at. When you start to get to frozen stuff, things get a lot more complicated to make sure that it remains frozen, doesn't thaw and refreeze. All those things can really make a big difference. So right now we don't really have a supply chain that's capable of, of handling all the manufacturing we're doing. Second big problem is this is really regulated. Right. I mean, this is highly regulated stuff. It's got to go through qualification, certification. You've got to you've got to apply to become you have to have the right vaccination people in place. You've got to have the right facilities in place. You've got to have all those processes in place. All the systems have to be tested out. So it is a it's a uh, it's a significant problem. And uh, if you talk to the healthcare people, they're trying to save people's lives. They're not trying to inject people with new vaccines. They're trying they're all busy trying to save, you know, their 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 hospitals are getting overwhelmed. So 
they don't have that much capacity available to give a lot of injections. Uh, and so we have to train a lot more people to do these injections. And these injections aren't normal injections. They are very small doses that require quite a bit of precision in terms of the injectory. And you've got to prepare the process, the, the, the bottle appropriately. You can't, you can't shake it. It could break up the little, little lipid nanoparticles and so on. So there's some training that needs to go on that's quite challenging. And the vaccination uh, process actually wastes a little bit of material, which you don't want to do either. So the better you train these people, the more material you're going to have. It only takes 30 micrograms. In other words, we could vaccinate the entire United States with a bucket, with a 10-gallon bucket of, 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 of antigen. That's, that's how you know, powerful and small these doses are. Uh, when you get the vaccine, you won't believe how easy it is. I mean, it, we're talking about little tiny needles, uh, you know, very small amounts of injection. Uh, you'll, you'll enjoy that part. You, what, what, what'll hit, hit, the, hit you the later is the reactogenicity, right? Your immune system say, hey, you know, something's attacking. We better go after it. And that's a good sign because you actually, your your means you're activating your immune system. And, that, and then about two days later, you'll feel the, you'll be a little bit tired out uh, because your body is, is, is responding appropriately. Uh, of course, this is the virus we're giving you. We're just giving you a little piece of the, of the protein, and that's all you're reacting to. The, hmm. Then we got to change all the manufacturing all around, right? We've got a lot of new entrants coming in. We've got Moderna that has one set of requirements. Then we have Pfizer that's another set of requirements. Uh, J&J is coming, Novavax is coming, Sanofi is coming. All these things, all these groups have slightly different requirements about how they're supposed to be shipped and handled, and that chain that that's a, that's a big challenge because uh, they, they're all, all, not all going to be able to use the same infrastructure all the time. And then, of course, the logistics. We we talked about this. Normally, our, our wastage levels for vaccines are about twenty percent in the United States uh, overall. The world for sure, 20%, 25%. And now we got a minus 70 and a minus 20 degree cold chain, so it's going to be even worse. Plus, it turns out that Pfizer put a little bit of extra dosing in each vial. And so now people are planning for 5,000 doses to be <coughs> per opened per open case, and now they're getting 7,000. So all of a sudden, you need an extra 2,000 people uh, in line to get vaccinated, which is why if, you're, if, you're, if the audience is interested in getting a shot faster, they should try to stand, fly standby and you know, wait at the end of the day, come by and see if uh, some of the groups that, are, that have Pfizer uh, vaccines, that's, that includes Beaumont, includes Ascension. Um, yeah, you can call and find out whether they have Pfizer vaccines, but most of the, most of the sites have Pfizer vaccines in, in, in Michigan. And that means they're gonna have some extra possibly at the end of the day. And then we've got the unintegrated, the biggest problem we're having is unintegrated systems, right? The, these, these poor guys in the hospital are saying on Thursday, we need to have X doses. And on Tuesday, they're told, okay, you get these many doses. By that time, you've already lost half the week, and you got to really figure out, is it 1,000 doses I'm planning for or 5,000 doses, and, and then getting people in line and getting ready and, and adjusting. So this, this week, we're going to, I think, stop vaccinating on Tuesday and Wednesday because we didn't get quite as many doses as we thought we would. Um, and that's disappointing, right? Because people are ready to, in line like you. They've been notified. You're ready to go. And then, oh, sorry, you know, and, and we don't have enough doses. So that's, that's why you can see where we started 35 million doses of capacity in the vaccination market in the United States. That's where we started with. We want to get to 2 billion, and we think we are going to drive to 2 billion doses distributed by January 1st of 2022. In fact, Pfizer alone thinks it can get to 2 billion doses. Wow. And then you add that to Moderna, who thinks they can get to 1.2. You're, you're starting to flow 3.2 billion doses through a supply chain with a capacity to only have 35 million doses <laughs> in a year. So that's just an incredible ramp up if you think about it. And then you've got all these other things where you've got adjuvants and reagents and stoppers and needles and injectors and oh, dry ice and all these things that have to come together at the right time at the right place. And it's complicated. So that's some of the reason that we're having some challenges with the supply chain. Mm -hmm. Which brings me to my next question. In two days, uh, Biden will be the president, and he's talking about using the Defense Production Act. Yes. Hallelujah. It'll probably happen, and if so, what do you think will happen? I mean, will that really ramp things up quickly, or what? Well, so we've got about... So if you, if you look at the dosing that's coming out, we've got 15 million doses that were shipped this last week. We've got about 35 million doses that we're going to ship this week. Uh, we got about 5 million uh, extra doses that we're going to get out the door before Biden, uh, you know, and, and the OWS wanted to do that before Biden came to office. Just to show that you know, we've got some capacity here, they want to stress the system a little bit and push as much as they could. So we're going to start flat with Joe. Uh, and that's going to be, you know, uh, uh, so he's going to have to then catch up with that bolus injection, right, of all the extra people he now has to inject 
in 21 to 28 days. Plus, he's going to have to continue to ramp to get to the new people. So I think we're going to see um, it's, it's going to go a little bit slower than we're hoping. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, uh, the, I think the Defense Production Act can help, especially in a couple of areas. One uh, is in is is trying to get the, the what they call fill and finish out the door uh, more effectively, and getting more doses per va- uh, per per bottle with the new vaccinators uh, that I was talking about, the new injectors I was talking about. There's a lo- there's a little bit of work we can do um, in terms of some of the machining, uh, some of the automation uh, for cell culture and production. Uh, we can get so we can get a little bit more out out with that, um, and and then um, you know there's a, there's an awful lot of of capability. So that that's in general for the uh, mRNA vaccines. But remember, the only people who really have that capability with mRNA are Pfizer and Moderna. So we could probably we could try to get others to you know to do what Moderna and Pfizer are doing, but they'd have to, you know, ramp up a new, a new facility. It's, it's, it's a little bit complicated. We have to see if we can, can convert uh, cell culture facilities and, and, and so on. But the, as you saw before, that, that slide I showed before, which is how complicated some of the production is. I mean, this is, this is, we're talking about this production environment where you've got to have a DNA templating capability. There are some companies that do have that capability. Um, unfortunately, um, those people are largely already working for Moderna. So Lanza has that capability. There are a few others. You can see Cordon Pharma is doing their their uh, lipid nanoparticle production. There are a couple more people who have that uh, lipid nanoparticle capability. And then they have Catalent doing the sterile, sterile piece. But sterile production uh, and cell culture purification, it's almost black art, and it takes a long time to wrap it up, uh, uh, to ramp up. So that that's some of the, you know, he can put in the Defense Production Act, but um, it's going to be tough to find people who are really capable and really able to move it. He'd probably be better off using a Defense Production Act in distribution. And specifically, oh, am I? We're running out of time. I'm getting text from Dave saying he's got another Zoom call he's got to deal with. Holy cow, that was fast. Well, I just wanted to show you, I think the way to go about defense production is actually getting the National Guard out with these vaccinator-focused factory sites in a box. And that's what we'll talk about next time. All right, sounds wonderful, and I think Dave wants to have you on the show tonight, but I'm not. Oh, sure. Oh yes, we'll go through that. And we'll go through everything. We'll, we'll yep, he's like, yeah. Do me a favor. Um, hop on at about nine thirty for me. Beautiful. Yes. Perfect. Well, and how long do you want to go? You we go you, well, well, we'll let it roll. We'll let it roll. Let it roll. Okay. okay, that'd be an hour right. show there. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, sorry, sorry about my crash right in the middle of the show there, fellas. But oh, no uh, problems. All right. That happens. Not yeah, a problem. Once in a while, it, it froze up, but I couldn't get it to not freeze. So I just oh. turned it off and turned it back on. So Okay. okay. Well, thanks very much, Fred. We're always appreciative of the fact. Oh, pleasure, you guys. Be, be careful out there. It's going to get worse uh, with, with this new variant. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we'll, we'll be back uh, with Fred once again next Monday at uh, starting at 2 p.m. with our regular edition of the M Squared TechCast. Until next Monday, it's Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. And you're watching the M Squared TechCast, MITechnews.tv. Thanks for listening to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest.